I, I just want to admit I am angry a lot these days. Um, it doesn't manifest, at least for me, it doesn't manifest itself sort of outwardly. It's, it's more inwardly. Uh, I feel angry maybe more than ever, and I'm not proud of it. I'm embarrassed of it. I'm just admitting this today because I'm preaching to myself mostly. Um, I'm angry that in this information age that we live in, like we've never been more inundated with lies and conspiracy theories. I'm angry about the division I see. I'm angry about this vaccine rollout that seems really weighed down with bureaucracy and just kind of bad decisions. I mean, that probably tells you something more about me that I'm, I'm more angry about the rollout than I am grateful that there's a vaccine. Um, I'm angry at a lot of Christian leaders who I feel personally let down by, you know, a, a late Christian apologist, maybe the Christian apologist of our generation who turns out to be a sexual predator. Uh, really doesn't matter if you can prove the existence of God, if your own life is one of um, abuse and lies. I'm angry about this tribe that I was a part of, the, the, the evangelical tribe. And it's now more associated with grievance and uh, victimhood and outrage and political influence and nationalism than it is with love, with serving, with good news, with good works. It makes me, it makes me mad. You know, there's a, uh, there's a person in our church, a really wise person who had to just quit the news. She didn't like what it was doing to her. And I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm, my addiction is strong. The news makes me angry. And I think we can say that COVID has not helped. There are pastors angry at other pastors for how they have responded to COVID. This is something that hits home. It's hit our community. Politics certainly haven't helped. I know of someone in the States who just acknowledged that Joe Biden is president, okay? Just acknowledged it and didn't say any editorializing about it. That caused lifelong church friends to not even look at them on Sunday morning. They were so upset. I've never seen anything like this in 20 years of ministry. People so angry. And some of you may not want to hear this, but um, I have proudly utilized therapy in my life. And uh, therapists have been really helpful to work through my own particular brand of brokenness. I had a therapist who once asked me, Jonathan, what do you get out of your anger? It's a confusing question. What do I get out of it? You think I want to be angry? So I wrestled with that, you know? I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer even to this day, but I think she was on to something. Is it sort of this dopamine hit? Uh, you know, something that Facebook and YouTube have kind of figured out that anger sells, anger gets more clicks? Is there something in our human nature that likes having an enemy, um, likes plotting revenge, likes even you know, playing these grievance scenarios out in our mind. 
It's something worth wrestling with today. In fact, I would even ask you the question, what do you get out of your anger? What it may be getting you mostly is loss of sleep as you toss and turn and sort of play that out in your mind, a loss of peace, a loss of desire to pursue Christ, to worship, a grieving of the Holy Spirit. Can I give you two big unavoidable realities out of life, kind of like death and taxes? Number one, there will be people you will have to interact with. Duh. Uh, You're married to them. You're the mother or father of them. You're the son or daughter. You're the sister or brother of them. You are the employee or the employer. You're the neighbor, the coach, the teammate. Unless you move to a desert island with Tom Hanks and Wilson, like you will have to interact with people. Here's the second big reality. I guarantee there will be conflict with those people. Maybe not all of them to the same degree, but there will be relational tension, okay? Disagreement, hurt, frustration, anger. And sometimes it will be your fault and sometimes it will be their fault. And usually there's plenty of blame to go around. Now, with that in mind, let's just take those two truths and apply it to this next section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through. It's Matthew 5, verse 21, and you can follow along with me. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, okay, this is like, goes back to last week where Jesus is showing such amazing fearless authority. He's saying, I have an interpretation of the law that's superior to anyone else's. The law says one thing, but here's what I'm telling you. That's just wonderfully audacious. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, quick aside, uh, why do you think Jesus specifically mentions your brother and your sister? Why not anger towards the world more? This is just a theory, but could it be that our biggest temptation towards anger is going to be among those closest to you? You know, your husband, your wife, your parents, your siblings, your kids. Oh, and what about these people you do life with in church who disappoint you. Uh, Sometimes spouses have such barn burners, fights with each other, that the teaching to love your enemy is what's most applicable here. So Jesus is giving, I think, really practical, a relational principle. It's simple, but it's super hard. When there is relational conflict, don't let it turn to bitterness. Don't do it, okay? Don't attack, don't seek revenge, don't call them names or swear at them, like, which I realize takes all the fun out of conflict. But I mean, let's be honest, our first response is to usually seek out the affirmation, the comfort 
that comes by going to as many people as we can to get on our side and trash the other person, what they did and what they said. And if we, if we can't do that, we can at least privately seethe, you know, rehearsing the offense, the anger, the hurt until it kind of gets cemented in our spirit. Now, just to be clear, do you think Jesus was saying all anger is bad? Nah, uh, we can say that confidently because Jesus led the perfect life. He got angry and yet never sinned. So there's such a thing as righteous anger. Paul, Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin, which you know, implies that it is possible to be angry without sinning. Anger is a human emotion. It was created by God, given to us. Anger can be natural, it can be healthy. It can be an appropriate reaction to any number of situations. Listen, you should get angry at injustice. All right, you should get angry when a child is abused. You should get angry and that anger should result in action. We spent a whole summer, remember talking about our own righteous anger, our holy discontent. Um, Can that righteous anger turn into sinful anger? Yeah, yeah. I remember being in Cambodia which is some believe is sort of the hub of human trafficking in the world and uh, being so righteously stirred by what I was seeing. And then, you know, being downtown uh, Phnom Penh, seeing what I was sure were men soliciting underage sex workers and having this vengeful fantasy play out in my head of just wanting to seek not so much justice, but revenge. It can turn sinful. So even if it is righteous, justified anger, it's it's sinful to let it turn into bitterness or revenge. I like how Sky Jatani puts it. He's, he's, He's who wrote uh, the book, What If Jesus Was Serious, who we're sort of uh, recommending in this series. He says, I rarely see all things clearly. And a weapon as dangerous as anger is best deployed only by someone with perfect vision. I trust Jesus to use anger righteously. I don't trust myself. Because often our so-called justified anger, it gets bigger and bigger. Our emotions get hypercharged, right? And the person that we're upset with gets more and more vilified. So you'll notice we start assuming that they have darker and darker motives, that their intent is more malevolent and and it builds up inside of us. Everything about the offense gets intensified. Everything about the person gets demonized. You notice that? We talked about offense last year for several weeks, and and some of you might remember that the word offense can be translated as bait in a trap, Um, the bait of Satan, if you will. And it is a trap, and it will ensnare you, because while a particular offense might be real, 
Here's the secret. We don't have to be offended. In fact, the offense isn't the point. Our reaction is the point. Um, it's always on us. It's always something that we can choose. Now, that's not to say there aren't legitimate reasons we become angry with people. You, you may have been brought up in an unhealthy, overachieving household, and now it seems like your, your anger is just waiting to be triggered. Like maybe you had a, a perfectionist parent Maybe you receive too much or too little attention at a certain age in your childhood. Damaged emotions, childhood wounds, you know, don't ignore those. Those, um, there, there are some people who are always angry, it seems, and don't know why, but there are good, there's good work to be done in therapy because every person is worth understanding. Sometimes, the anger can manifest as external. Some people call it hot anger, you know, it's obvious anger. It can manifest as internal. That's what I talked about is sort of my thing. Cold anger, they call it. People are equally hurt by both. Uh, the main difference, I think, between the two is hot anger is sort of brief, explosive. Cold anger sort of settles in. Longer term, that's where we get the, the terms like cold shoulder, um, withdrawal, the silent treatment, ghosting, right? Feeling sorry for yourself. I've heard it said, and this certainly doesn't apply to every situation. There's, there's real things like brain chemistry and physiology, but sometimes the formula is, is like this. Sadness plus anger equals depression. Unprocessed anger can lead to depression. Are these forms of anger sin? Well, they can be. They can be uh, because we are still responsible for our own reactions and our attitudes. And sometimes our reactions are resentment, bitterness, even hatred. And when we not only take offense, but then feed that offense. Oh man, that's when it really gets ugly. Jesus even connects our anger to murder of all things, but if there's like a murder that takes place in our heart, because, because what did the Mosaic law have to say about our anger? Nothing. Zero. Zilch. The law seems just concerned about our external behavior. And Jesus was deeply concerned about our inner world, our heart. Speaking of the law and legalism, um, for anyone raised in the church this morning, I don't know, did verse 22 used to terrify you? If I call someone a fool, am I going to hell? Uh, let me get to that in a minute. Because first there's this word raka. If you call anyone raka, which is translated as empty, as in empty headed, right? Like calling, it's like fancy word, vac oh, she's so vacuous. Fancy word of saying idiot, empty headed. Have you noticed when we're angry at others, 
we love to make them appear dumb, you know, own the libs, roll our eyes, burn them on Twitter. Jesus says, stop it. But there's something worse according to Jesus. And I think it's a judgmental anger. Here's what I mean. But anyone who says you fool and the, and the, and the word here in the Greek is mori. And it's where we get the word moron, but there's another deeper meaning that I think was understood at that time. It's like, it's calling someone an apostate or someone specifically who is worthy of hell. You're saying this person deserves to go to hell. They're so bad. Well, now you're playing God, right? Now I don't hear a lot of people say that uh, specifically other than kind of a flippant go to hell. But here's what I do hear a lot of people judging another's heart or motive or character. And when you do that, you're judging this person as no good, right? You've expressed kind of a contempt for someone's heart in calling someone Raka. You, you've shown contempt for the person's head. In calling someone fool, you've judged the person as beyond hope. They're worthy of hell. They're beyond God's grace. We're judging their heart and we're playing God. And you know, the Bible calls the devil the great accuser in Revelation. Um, but when we judge another's heart, we take on the role of accuser. And Christians this morning, we already have an accuser. We don't need to take on that role, okay? So while I don't believe that Jesus is saying that if, if, you, if you've been judgmental or if you've called somebody a fool, you're going to hell, I mean, who of us hasn't failed in that area? Jesus says, one is in danger of hellfire, which interestingly, if you look at James three, verse six, uh, he said, this is the brother of Jesus, by the way, he says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Your anger, your judgment gives Satan a foothold. You, Maybe this warning is as much about all hell breaking loose. So, so Jesus' first helpful principle is to just nip this in the bud at the very beginning. What do we choose instead of hate? What do you choose instead of offense? Grace. Grace looks at people as more than what they do. Okay? That's maybe part of the very definition of grace. Grace tries to empathize as to why they may have said what they said. Grace gives the benefit of the doubt that maybe they didn't mean it the way you took it. Because when you lock eyes with anyone on this planet, you can safely assume that they too carry deep wounds. Um, Maybe they've endured painful family Dysfunction. Maybe they live day in and day out with just deep areas of temptation and struggle. What if you thought about that when you 
got into conflict with someone, that maybe they're doing the best they can. Um, maybe they didn't really mean to come across the way you interpret it. You might even remember in that moment that, that you do a lot of stupid stuff too, that you're misinterpreted a lot. I, I think that's the way we would want other people to think about us um, based on what we say and do. We'd want maybe the most generous interpretation of what we say and do. How much of the conflict in your life would end with just that one step alone? Like choosing not to be offended, purposely extending grace, giving the benefit of the doubt. I bet you 99% of it would, right? Most people who've hurt you don't have a clue that they've hurt you. I bet, I bet 90% of the people who hurt us are oblivious to it, which has got to make you think, how many times have you hurt someone and been oblivious to it? Well, let's keep reading because Jesus has more to say. Uh, picking up in Matthew 5, 23. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, <clears throat> go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So if the first principle is don't give in to bitterness, don't give in to offense, I think the second one asks, Okay, if there's a deeper issue going on here, what do you do? Um, you know, it's an issue, something beyond just sort of like letting it go and assuming the best. In other words, if step one isn't enough, you got to go to step two. And that is pursue reconciliation. Pursue it. Now, uh, you'll notice in this example, I don't want you to miss the language, the context that Jesus paints in this picture. Um, first of all, I think he's assuming that the person you're in conflict with is in a relationship with God. And in fact, in this example, they're, they're about ready to engage in some act of worship, okay? Some sacrifice, they're giving, they're, they're doing something churchy, okay? And there in the midst of that act, he says, suppose you remember that there's this relational breakdown in your life. Kind of a brilliant juxtaposition, really. Picture yourself doing something to please God, okay? I'm, I'm about to go to church. I'm singing reckless love. I'm about to take communion. And out of the blue, I remember this relational issue. And he says, for those of you who consider yourself God followers, here's what you should do. And now, <clears throat> just notice too that Jesus doesn't really... Uh, say whether the issue is somebody has something against you because of what you said or did, or you have an issue against someone else because of what they said or, or did. It's kind of unclear. He simply says that there's just somebody out there you're not good with. Could the ambiguity maybe even be the point, right? Because whether you're the offender or the offended if you're serious about your relationship with God, this is the next step. You be the spiritual adult in the room. And, and when it comes to biblical reconciliation, I hate to tell you this, but the onus is always on you. 
You be the pursuer. You be the mature one. So you're the one to not only walk away from anger and hate, but walk towards reconciliation. Sucks, right? (laughs) You think pride might possibly play into this scenario at all? Yeah. So even if you're getting ready to do your Bible study or your quiet time or uh, you're off to volunteer at Serve Our City, uh, if you're reminded of an offense, you pursue reconciliation. Here's another way of putting it. Our vertical relationship with God will not be as it should be as long as our horizontal relationships are not as they could be or should be. Jesus is saying that broken relationship of yours, that is the number one spiritual to-do list, okay? Put the communion down, stop singing, figure out that relationship piece first. And just don't think that you're gonna have pure communion with God when you're holding a grudge or you realize someone has a grudge against you. Now, you might be saying, but that person really ought to be coming to me. I know, maybe. But Jesus says, you go, you go. I I don't know about you. What I would rather do is go to like six other people and tell them what was done to me and how hurt I am and, and how I know I really need to talk to them, but I just can't right now. That's called gossip. That's called disunity. That's called immaturity. Jesus says, talk to one person and one person only, the one that you're having issues with. The, the only time that that changes is if you try and it doesn't go anywhere. And that happens sometimes, especially if, if they are a brother or sister in Christ. You bring in another person maybe who, who both of you trust, a person that can kind of act as a mediator. That, that comes later. What you don't do is go vomit your anger out on a half a dozen people. And yeah, you'll feel better. Uh, You'll get it off your chest and you will have infected six other people with your offense. It's, it's toxic. So you go to the person simple, right? Maybe, but it sure ain't easy. I know that. So let's, let's just get practical right now. Could we, if, if you think someone is offended by you and you're sensing some distance, some hostility, here's what you do. Go to them and say, are we okay? Um, have I done anything to offend you? Uh, because if I have, I would love to know it. Um, I'd love to talk about it. And if, if needed, I'd, I'd like to own it and ask for forgiveness. How do you think most people would respond to that? Uh, well, think about how you would respond. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you soften a bit? I think you would. Wouldn't you feel like you can enter into a grown-up conversation? So they may say, um, well, now that you mention it, um, I should have talked to you about this earlier, but there's this thing that happened. And nine times out of 10, um, I can say, 
you know what? I am sorry. Um, I wasn't even meaning it that way. And at the end of it, I might just confirm that I was heard. And I might say something like, again, I am so sorry uh, about this. Are, are we good? Um, is there anything else maybe that you haven't said? Now, what if you're the one who's a little out of sorts with them? Again, let me just make this super practical this morning. You might say something like this. Um, can we talk about something? I know you didn't mean it, but in today's meeting, I felt like you were kind of condescending and uh, I was actually kind of hurt by it. Like, I don't want to hold this against you in my spirit, but that's just how it felt to me. You get the tone of that, right? It's not accusatory. It's more about sharing your feelings and giving them a bit of an open door to address it. Nine times out of 10, here's what they'll say. Oh, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I totally did not mean it that way. You know, that is you heeding the words of Jesus and going, initiating, addressing anger before it turns into something else. Don't give it time to take root. Get get that weed of anger out of there before it has time to grow. Now, I already know the emails that I'll be getting, and they're all, they're all going to have one question. So if I don't address this now, what if they don't want to resolve? What if no matter what I do or say, they refuse to talk, they refuse to forgive, refuse to confess? What if none of this works? Here's the short answer. Uh, at some point, you may just have to let it go and know you've done all you can. Uh, the Bible says to live with others in peace as much as you can, as much as you are able, as much as they let you. At some point when you're exhausted and you've tried everything, you might have to say, look, I've always... Um, I'm always ready to talk to you about this. I, I stand ready to pursue reconciliation, okay? But it takes two of us to do this. And so I'm gonna be prayerful that you'll be open to this one day. I know that I'll be ready when you are. There's a type of person out there, Jesus calls them a wolf, uh, someone with evil intent, there's also the fool, someone who just runs away from wisdom and they are just habitually unsafe kinds of people. Um, maybe they're constantly offended or constantly fault finding, constantly attacking. You know, those are special circumstance, unsafe people. That doesn't mean you start fighting back though. Uh, it means that there are wise boundaries you're gonna have to maintain for your safety, for the sake of your spirit, for the sake of not being baited into a trap. It's rare, but it happens. I know some of you are living with that tension today. You've tried everything you can, but there's another person unwilling to engage or listen or even meet. You know, when it happens, the Bible is, is kind of clear on its counsel. Take a look from Titus 
warn a quarrelsome person once or twice, but then be done with them. It's obvious that such a person is out of line, rebellious against God. By persisting in divisiveness, he cuts himself off. There, there comes a time when you have to relationally sort of remove yourself from someone because they will not allow you to be in community with them. It's never plan A, okay? It's never the first step or the second step or the third step. It only comes after sort of every possible attempt at resolution has been made. When there are patterns of abuse or toxicity just won't change. Um, you just can't subject yourself to that, okay? But it is the last step. And because uh, the goal, folks, is never separation. It's always reconciliation, isn't it? There, uh, these are not uncommon cases, though. Um, I'll tell you what's not uncommon right now in 2021 is a lot of angry people, a lot of bitter people, a lot of unforgiving people. So let me just put it as bluntly as I know how before we close to today. Your, your unrighteous anger grieves the Holy Spirit. It does. Others may not know even what you're feeling or thinking, but the Holy Spirit knows. He is sensitive to the pride in your anger, your bitterness, your determination to get revenge, Ephesians says that bitterness is one of the chief ways to grieve the Holy Spirit in you. If you want more of God, beware of the bitterness in your heart. But you don't realize what they did to me. You're right. <clears throat> a great evil may have happened to you. There may have been a great injustice. But I am telling you, if bitterness is not dealt with, your relationship with God will never be what it ought to be. I want to lead us in a prayer today. Um, I want to be set free from the grip of anger. I want you to be set free from it. But if we're going to call this out specifically, you know, um, just saying Jesus died for my sins is nice and it's vague and it's a lot easier than saying Jesus died for my out of control anger that severely damages the people that I love the most. You know, I'm a sinner. That's, that's, that's easier to admit than I'm not forgiving my former friend, you know, in generalities, no one is exposed, but no one really grows too. So I want us to pray a prayer that is specific about our anger. So just at home, um, I've put the words up. Would you pray this with me? Jesus, I have justified my anger. Pride has kept me there. Sometimes I find it hard, if not impossible, to accept the blame, to appear weak. Saying sorry can feel like dying a thousand deaths inside. But I'll do it, Lord, if that may just help put a nail in the coffin of my pride.
I'm the one who feels in the right. So Holy Spirit, I need you to bring objectivity about myself. Lord, I need you. I need your help to truly forgive others, which means I don't need to keep bringing up my offense. It means I can let people save face as opposed to rubbing their noses in it. Jesus, you keep having to teach and reteach this in my life because it doesn't come naturally. I need the Holy Spirit in me to even want to do this. Forgive me of my anger. Forgive me of my bitterness. Teach me to forgive as you have forgiven me. Set me free from the bondage of resentment so that I can live fully and love totally and experience the peace of God and the filling of the Spirit. I give you my pride. I give you my anger. I give you my bitterness. Amen.